This is Overture, the Prelude Podcast. Welcome to the Prelude Podcast. My name is Christopher Willis. This is Alex. Hello. We have Spencer here. And we also have Lewis. Hello. <laughs> what? Why is that funny? That's the least funny thing I'm going to do all day. <laughs> well, yeah, we got a long podcast ahead of us, so. Yeah. So we're in Seattle, and we have a team meeting uh, that we've been doing for the last few days, and it's been great. Um, so we decided that we thought we'd do a podcast uh, while we're all together and have our first video podcast. Or attempt at video podcast. Yeah, at least attempt at it. a better way to phrase it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Spencer, you want to introduce yourself a little bit sure. further? Yeah. And thanks, guys, for attempting this. Let's see how this goes. Um, so, hi, I'm Spencer Thompson. I'm the CEO of Prelude. Um, quick background. I came to this industry and, frankly, this company almost by accident. Um, the first company, which I think we're going to talk about today, was called So Can You, where I worked with Lewis. And that company was focused on uh, career discovery and career development, helping people find their ideal career um, through assessment, uh, an encyclopedia, and a taxonomy. And the first version of Prelude, which we can also talk about more, is actually a school. And we're sitting in a classroom, which you can't see. But uh, back in 2019, the first version of what we did actually trained uh, students to become tier one SOC analysts. So my entire background pre-security was actually focused on education, job placement, and training. Um, I'm Lewis. Uh, as Spencer <laughs> said, I used to work with him. Uh, I guess, let me uh, think about how I'm going to phrase this. I started my career making <laughs> websites as a child. And then from there to here, I ended up making Prelude now. So I'm an engineer at Prelude, and uh, <laughs> I'm sticking with that. <laughs> Thank you. That was, that was quite something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's for reference if you've ever seen the, the UI and operator that is out of his brain. So, yeah. <laughs> not that funny, guys. I found it hilarious. Yeah, so today, um, as, by way of good transition, mm -hmm. we are going to be talking a little bit about career development and job placement because I think that's very relevant in the cybersecurity industry right now. Mm -hmm. There's a complete dearth of like people available to fill this massive, massive industry. Mm. So let's kind of talk a little bit about that. So you mentioned So Can You. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what the goal of that company was, kind of independent of the security industry? Um, sure. Um, so the first version of that company was actually focused on an experience that I had had in high school. Uh, I grew up in Niagara Falls uh, on the Canadian side, so like a very heavy manufacturing town. And in my class, in particular, something like 50% of the kids ended up taking health sciences at the same couple universities. And when you look at their parents, their parents, I think 80% of their parents actually worked in manufacturing, including my mm -hmm. dad. So basically General Motors, Ford, subsidiaries. And so you had this incredibly homogenous set of career choices that in some ways was representative of like the Rust Belt in the US for like 50, sure. 60 years. And, um, because of that kind of homogenous career choice, all the kids basically listened to dogma. And the dogma was something like, if you go to trade school, you go to four-year college, some version of that, middle class, um, you know, basically life is gonna happen for you. 
economic mobility is going to happen for you. And that all kind of blew apart in 2008, 2009. And so I was shocked at the fact that one of the most important decisions somebody makes in their life, what career they're going to go into, is basically left up to choice or chance. And that, that chance was largely dictated from dogma. People were passing down, you know, my great-great-grandfather was a, was a blacksmith. And so my you know, grandfather was a blacksmith and it's kind of like cascades down the chain and people end up in kind of careers by accident. And so the idea was, could you have some kind of a scientific bent towards solving that problem? Take in millions of data points about people that have been in careers and actually start to predict, which is a very much, you know, an art, not a science, what careers would be a good fit for a person. So at least they had some kind of level playing ground when making a decision. And I'm not sure we were ultra successful given the complexity of that, which you know, Lois can talk about too, but that was the, the first attempt. Awesome. And Lois, how did you get involved in, in that project? I don't know. I just kind of parachuted in. Um, we had a mutual friend who was working at Sokenu at the time, and uh, this mutual friend was starting the enterprise version of the whole project. Mm -hmm. uh, we were basically what so can you had basically was a giant uh, psychometric test where you would go fill out a giant form of like five point questions uh standard like likert scales and stuff like that um like i very much agree very much disagree with i am good at leader and stuff like that uh and we wanted to use that and try and find a way to um, instead of just making it so that be open for the public to come in, provide their different ratings and likes, dislikes, all that kind of stuff, and match careers with them, uh, try to find a way to make that purposeful inside organizations so we could use it to match um, empl employees to better roles inside the existing organization uh, and try and just make internal HR processes more efficient and streamlined, as well as uh, in screening uh, interview candidates and stuff like that. Um, and because everyone else was already working on the platform, uh, I got brought in to basically lead that and run that. And it basically yeah. resulted in a giant hack on our existing <laughs> stuff to make things work, but it worked. And we had some paying clients, mm -hmm. uh, some pretty big ones, but for various reasons, we decided to shut it down and focus we on- We actually sold it. Oh yeah, that's we sold true. the asset. That's true. Yeah. So created an outcome, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> the first outcome of uh, that company. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, after that, I just like dropped onto the main team, helped out, did the first ML version of the algorithm because a priori, it was uh, the, the way that the entire thing operated was we had basically a giant matrix of um, scale scores for all these different careers, which were all hand-tuned. And when a user came through the system, they just like provide their scores of like all this exact same scales, psychometric scales, mm -hmm. again, being like, I am leader, I am, uh, you should explain what psychometrics means, though. I don't really have a good definition of it. Okay. <laughs> you might want to, because I'm going to do a very bad job Just at it. Just attempting to measure human beings, yeah. specifically in the context of work, for yeah. the most part. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for us, it was in context of work. Yeah, psychometrics can be applied to all sorts of different things. Yeah, this is yeah. like your uh, Myers-Briggs thing and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I've um, actually, when I was applying to some jobs out in Australia, a lot of the companies yes. would require psychometrics yes. Yeah. Yes, before you would even like get to certain levels of interviews. Yeah. yeah. I remember when I was in high school, I applied for a job at a department store. Not even department store. It was a, basically equivalent of a CVS, London Drugs in Canada. And uh, I had to fill out a psychometric scale. Thing. And our first investor, and so can you design that for London Drugs. I know, oh. and uh, yeah. 
I got rejected. Right. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> you're too, too smart to work at London Drugs? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, yeah. yeah, so the original version of our thing basically had this giant hand tune list and person providing their own self-reported scores, and we would just like multiply those matrices, or the matrix of our scale scores with a vector of your things and just provide, we, we'd get a similar similarity matrix out of that. And that would be basically like, yeah, this is your fit with each career. Yeah. Um, we want to extend that. And so like, I had fun uh, basically doing a giant uh, elaborate matrix factorization project uh, in order to basically do the same thing, but make it less reliant on these hand-tuned parameters. Although there was a lot of hand-tuning stuff that went sure. into making the entire matrix factorization pipeline work the way it did mm -hmm. because I had a lot of uh, extra fun knobs that I played with a lot on that, so, yeah. yeah. So what really interests me would be what kind of macro level trends did you identify mm -hmm. uh, in terms of people applying for careers or uh, people thinking they were gonna be good at one type of career, mm -hmm. but it turns out like this subset of the population was actually more apt to, t to do this particular job. Yeah, so that's a complicated question. I think the first thing to probably recognize is that there's probably four distinct labor markets in the States, which nobody really likes to talk about. So you have a labor market for, call it the 0.1%, like super elite careers, technology, investment banking, things like that. They're not going to use a career assessment, right? Like, yeah. it's in some ways it's ironic that the more elite you get, the fewer choices you have career-wise. You'd actually assume it's the opposite, where you'd like, you know, there's probably close to 1,100 unique careers in the United States, but really in a, in a lifetime, you're only gonna get exposed to, I don't know, 40, 50 of them at most. And you know the more elite you get, the fewer you actually know about and like have a, a choice from. So there's kind of that super elite market, let's call it the 9.9%, um, which is you know globalist type, you know, information age, technology that we're privileged to be in running a cybersecurity company that would kind of count as almost like new era labor. Then you have the middle class and middle skills. Middle skills in the labor world, by the way, is defined as not requiring a bachelor's degree, but requiring more than a high school diploma. Okay. So things like a one-year associate's degree, two-year certificate, et cetera. Middle skills is the, you know, call it 35% of the U.S. labor market. And then you have kind of lower skills, more, um, you know, minimum wage jobs, minimum wage is very complicated. So you have almost like four distinct labor markets. and. The macro trends are actually different in each one of those things. Everybody likes to blab about automation as yeah. like a macro trend. What they really mean is automation for the fourth of those four labor markets. Mm -hmm. In middle skills, actually automation in some ways has an inverted coefficient. Many of those careers, take a welder for example, they're becoming more technical over time. So a welder in 1970 is not the same as a welder today. One of the fun facts about the US labor market is there's only been one career that's been declassified as a career in the last 50 years in America, which is an elevator shaft repair person or something. I forget <laughs> the exact definition. Everything else has had the same nomenclature for 50 years. But the underlying mm -hmm. atomic units, the skills underneath those things, have actually changed dramatically. So if you looked at like what a welder did in 1975 versus today, yeah, they're still called welder, but they're very different careers. They're much more technical. And so that macro trend of essentially technology becoming the undergirding of every single middle skills career has actually happened dramatically. So yes, there's a shortage in cyber, we're gonna talk about that. There's a massive shortage in nursing, there's a shortage in IT, there's a shortage in manufacturing, and we're talking in December of 2021, that shortage is incredibly acute 
this year. Like it was a shortage, you know, pre-pandemic. Now it's way more accelerated. You're talking about seven to eight million jobs that can't be filled today. And the churn rate, the number of times people are changing careers has accelerated since 2019. And so I think each of those distinct things has different trends. We tend to focus mostly on middle skills um, for various reasons. It's much more accessible. Average pay is call it, you know, $55,000. And so it's, um, you know, the, the economic mobility is both achievable, but also meaningful for many people. And the trends there actually were accelerated towards uh, needing increased training in order to help people kind of upskill into that. So I don't know if that's helpful, but those are all how we thought about the problem. Wow. No, I'd never heard that before, um, but it, it all kind of makes sense. And you brought up an interesting point. So you're saying the like the welder comparison of yeah. 1970 to now, mm -hmm. are, is that I would call that just like professionalization over time, I'd imagine, yep. as you're getting in, like increased liability in terms of regulation and governance of those careers and the expectations of, hey, you, you're the new welder on site and you have to know all these right. regulations, compliance criteria. Are you seeing, is that trend happening basically across mm -hmm. middle skills and uh, across lower skills? Or is this just a trend you only see in the middle skills and the, the higher, like the higher level labor, labor markets? I think what happens is when careers get introduced for the first time, like take data scientist, yeah. okay? Data scientist has been a career nomenclature wise for what, 10 years? I don't know if we ever used the term data scientist before 2010. Maybe we did, but I don't think so. It was like a statistician or. Yeah did math, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> and Analyst. yeah, it's like, so basically what happens is you introduce new careers, nobody actually knows what they do. It takes a whole bunch of time to actually define from a job description and requirement perspective, what actually matters for those things. It becomes codified, it kind of asymptotes out into like, oh, that's a data scientist. And then over time becomes, you build training pathways, you, begin, you, you build salary bands, all these different things. So what we're talking about in middle skills is a bunch of careers that were frankly invented 70, 80 years ago, that have become more codified in understanding how they actually need to be trained, which means you can apply things like regulation, a bunch of other stuff to it. I do think though, underneath that, automation, which is probably disrupting the lower kind of quartile of jobs, is disrupting the ability to get into middle skills jobs. So mm -hmm. they're not going away, but the undergirding of what it takes to become one of those things is becoming more challenging. And so even though they're not paying $100,000 a year, in some ways, they require same some of you know the underlying skills like skills in AutoCAD are required to be a welder now. That's in some ways quite technical and quite computer heavy. Yeah. And so it's not really like welder. It should be welder plus technology. It's like welder tech or whatever, right? It's like that sure. can be applied to almost everything today. You know, in healthcare, like the probably one of the fastest. There's like two fast growing you know trends there. One is medical coders and billers, so literally sitting on a computer, and the second is pharmacy technicians. Once again, tech. And that technician is, you know, they're paid $30,000, $35,000 a year. Um, they're getting more complicated and you have this kind of massive supply demand gap. So I think it's basically, we, as careers get older, they become more known. We're able to apply more things like regulations and certificates and this and that. But until then, it's like a bunch of messiness. And we'll yeah. get to this, but security is Looney Tunes when it comes to this. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's over a thousand certs in security. Yeah which makes no sense. It's actually, in some ways, the only industry in the world where certifications are the primary proxy for competence, but there's been inflation in the cert market. And so they actually don't mean that much for the most part. And we'll, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this later, yeah. but it's, it's in some ways the most unique of the, the labor space. Yeah. So what would you say was like, 
at, at the past career before we transitioned into the cybersecurity mm-hmm. side was the most challenging aspect of taking a person and like matching their aptitudes with their interests with the actual opportunities that exist. We may have the same answer on this, <laughs> but it's actually, I don't mean this in a flippant way. People don't know who they are. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, and, go yeah. ahead, Lewis. Like the, when the problem with the whole self-report thing and especially when it's tuned again, or in the original version of the SOCAN U assessment, uh, the self-reported Likert scales, uh, when those were matched against uh, our like internally proxied, like this is what we think this career needs with regard to um, your, I don't, I don't even remember what those scales are, but like they're fairly self, or should be fairly subject to your imagination. Uh, like that depends on you being honest about your actual scores that you're reporting, mm-hmm. uh, which in most circumstances for most people is very, very far off. Yeah. Especially when you're asking someone a question like, um, I agree that, or do you agree or disagree that you are a good leader or you're like good at leadership in general? Yeah. Um, most people don't even know what that really means, what leadership entails or anything like that. Totally, but you don't even agree what leadership the word means. Yeah, so the forum exactly. must probably have a different definition Absolutely. for that. Um, and like, so, there's a kind of a two-pronged problem there. It's like the, the agreement around words and nomenclature, but also your ability to actually see yourself without biases. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And like that, that's a huge problem, right? And that's one of the things we try to solve with, uh, like when we're doing like more ML-based kind of stuff, because you can just like hunt out problems. But even then, um, like the very early versions of our, our matching algorithm were based on careers that like you said you liked. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also a very crude primitive proxy uh, that is like also subject to like a whole bunch of like error, um, like. <laughs> so how so in that vein, how would you? Because I also see it now as I've taken like a Myers Briggs before. Yeah. On a given day, I'm going to answer questions one way, and then a week later, yeah. my answers I'm going to potentially have very different answers, honestly. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be, a lot of it is kind of the the reason double-blind testing exists. I'm I'm going to be biased to answer questions a certain way, depending how I'm feeling in the moment. So how do you kind of, how do you even get around that problem? Well, um, a lot of these, uh, like Myers-Briggs tests and stuff like that, like even if you do answer the questions differently on from day to day, um, they're built such that the questions themselves will like reinforce and triangulate from multiple directions, yeah. so that there is a fair degree of validity uh, oh, okay. from test to test. Exactly. Um, so okay. there, it's it's not as unstable as you would think, uh, but it it doesn't remove the biases. Like you, you're still going to be answering those questions um, with a certain t- level of internal coherence, um, and that internal coherence is still primed by like. The illusions you harbor about yourself, mm-hmm. uh, the illusions you harbor about the world, and with regard to like again, like going back to the, um, do I like or dislike careers? Um, that's kind of irrelevant to how yeah. good it would actually be in terms of fit for you, right? Yeah. Like a lot of people would be much better off not pursuing careers that they had any sort of passion or interest in or whatsoever, but simply choosing careers that they're most prone to being masterful at, mm-hmm. and you're going to be a lot happier in your life if you just choose a career that you can be really fucking good at. Um, well, yeah, I should. Yeah, let us swear on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's all yeah, you're, oh, you're okay. Like, um, one of the happiest men that I ever met uh, was me and my girlfriend, fiance. We were selling our house last year or earlier this year, and as part of that, we had to get like a septic pump or a septic tank like cleaned and fixed and all that kind of stuff. The guy who came to do that, he had 
Like, he drives around a truck full of literal shit all day long. Like, this is not the type of job that anyone grows up wanting to do at all. But this guy was just telling me story after story after story about how he would go out to all the little islands and, like, go on these barrier trips and he, like, clean out the septic tanks for, like, the hospitals and, like, the schools and, like, the little old lady who has nowhere else, no one else to even talk to. So when he comes to do her stuff, like, she's, like, he's the high point of her day. Um, and he was just really good at his job. Yeah. And he really saw the value in what he was doing. And because of that, he had so much internal satisfaction that mm -hmm. I guarantee he... Regard, if you ask them like about the success of his life and his career, he would answer like, "I would look at him as being far more successful than any of us, even uh, sure. regardless of like financial outcome or anything like that." He was doing pretty good too, because like jobs like that do pay like pretty well, especially yeah. when you can yeah. work long hours. You know, the only one that serves the area and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, just finding things that you can be masterful at, um, it's it, it's something that people neglect and to their mm -hmm. detriment. Right. So I think. We're also now as a transition kind mm -hmm. of into cybersecurity. Yeah. The the general theme that I see people have is I need to get into cybersecurity because money. Yeah. Like everything else aside, it's oh, this is a huge industry that's exploding, mm -hmm. uh, and I see those salaries. Yeah. Um, I don't know what like your perspective is, Chris, but yeah, I mean it's not even just cybersecurity; it's just like computer science in general. Yeah. Like uh, talking about stories, like I just. Uh, at a coffee shop here in Seattle and uh, last week I was sitting next to uh, a Microsoft engineer and an Amazon engineer and they literally were talking about how they didn't like computer science they only went into computer science because of the money and that uh, and I'm just sitting there I'm like I'm, I'm not like I'm just drinking my coffee and they're, they're talking about security bugs and how they just don't care yeah, right. Like wow. they have, they have a long wow. list of, of of bugs on their on their software, and these are PMs. Like these are senior PMs at these big companies, and they have a long list of security bugs, and they literally do not care about them. Yeah, they get their, yeah. their they get their monthly <laughs> check. They get their big huge monthly they're, check. They're happy. They're yeah. So so take kind of your taking your experiences mm -hmm. in in like the broader broader industries, mm -hmm. what are the trends that you see in cybersecurity that are unique, but what are the ones you also see that match the, like, the other industries that you were working in? Um, I think the, the similarities are the supply-demand gaps, and there's a lot of like media around, hey, we need more of blah, right? Like Microsoft and ISC Square, like all these kind of associations and companies are saying, we need more security workers. Yeah. Security is very different than other industries, though, in that, like, national defense and national security is inextricably tied to this employment. Like, it's actually a national security problem. Yeah. If we don't, I mean, you guys can speak to this more than I can, but, like, if you do not have enough people, like, it doesn't actually matter how many tools you develop. Tools are just augmentations on top of human beings. We're not going to automate out all these problems, which we can talk about, too. So security is a, more of a critical infrastructure, almost like wartime type piece. And so it, it necessitates a very different kind of um, employment pathway. Given that, I find it absolutely bizarre how security is designed employment pathway wise. It is like a cluster of just nothingness for the most part. Mm -hmm. Like if you go and you say you want to become a, an economist, for example, and you want to become an elite economist to change how 
international finance works. What would you go and do? You know, none of us are economists. We could probably give some kind of a bunch of proxies that make the most sense. You go and get a degree in economics from Harvard or Oxford or whatever. You go work at World Bank or IMF or, you know, and then you would go and like, you know, figure out how to be in that industry. If I say, I, you want to basically go into security. I'm going to leave it vague on purpose for a second. And you interview 100 people. They don't know how to get into security. Mm -hmm. yeah. They're like, do I, can I get a degree in that? And the answer is sometimes. Sometimes you can't. How technical is that degree? Depends on the school. Do I actually need the degree? I don't know. Like they have all these weird things that go into it. I think the other thing that security struggles with, which is very different, is other industries are much more specific about their nomenclature. A wind turbine technician is not that complicated to understand. The job might be tough. I would yep. be bad at it. But yep. none of us have been wind turbine technicians. But we all know what the heck that is. Mm -hmm. There's things that spin over there and they need to be, you know, worked on. <laughs> if I say SOC analyst, number one, people get upset in the industry and say, well, what do you mean by SOC analyst? Do you mean tier one SOC analyst? Do you mean IR analyst? Mm -hmm. We don't call our thing a SOC. We call it a blah, blah, like nobody can even agree on the nomenclature. How is yep. a person who's supposed to enter this industry supposed to know what these jobs even mean? Like we are so primitive at even explaining what the jobs are. And the problem is everything's a derivative of that. If you can't explain what a thing is, you can't create job descriptions. If you can't create job descriptions, you can't create requirements. If you can't create requirements, you can't create educational pathways. Mm -hmm. And so what you get are a bunch of people that in some ways proxy into the industry by accident. So their former military, their former criminal justice, their former police enforcement, their former whatever, and they happen to enter into security, which is deeply needed. And then even within security, you have this complete like cleavage between technical and non-technical, compliance and technical. And so given all of that, and I've you know, covered 1%, it is a very unique industry. Mm -hmm. And then you layer on top of that what I mentioned before, which is the way of, of proxying um, competence is defined by these Nonprofit and for-profit certification vendors, and when when you talk to employers, they go, oh, "I don't actually think those things matter that much." <laughs> and so, but you have you know thousands or tens of thousands of these certs being done per year, and people chasing after the certs that actually don't hold value in the ecosystem. And so the yep. question is, what do you do? And so I look at it and I go, "You have the spend in security is increasing at 20, 30 percent a year over a number that's in the hundreds of billions." It's not a surprise that job growth lags behind essentially growth in industry. So, you know, whether we have a shortage of half a million jobs in America or 800,000 jobs in security, it's going to get worse, not better. Assume that compounds at 20% a year. And you have no discrete pathways of how to enter into that career. And so this problem, in my opinion, is going to get worse, not better. And I actually don't see federal leadership and I don't see company leadership on trying to solve this problem. I yeah. actually think it's getting more complex because you have this complexity curve that in some ways is exponentializing. And so even within our company and how we define roles, I think it changes kind of quarter to quarter because, oh, we need to like focus on this thing more this quarter and here's a whole bunch of jargon that only we understand, I barely understand, <laughs> um, that we're supposed to then train people to go into. Yeah. And so I think it's really challenging. So it's kind of interesting because the, the like I'll speak to Air Force specifically because mm -hmm. that's what I'm familiar with. So the Air Force actually went through a lot of these growing pains mm -hmm. and still is yeah. to, to a large extent. Um, and the larger DOD did to a larger extent. And 
the problem was exactly that. We don't know what we need people to do. Right. Uh, and eventually they transitioned on to like coming up with taskable units, cyber protection teams, mm -hmm. uh, combat mission teams, combat support teams, and then having roles defined within those capacities. So what, what I actually have found, at least in my experience, is the vast majority of people that are coming into an actual training pipeline and coming out with skills are military personnel. Yeah, mm -hmm. And it's, it's people who've gone into the military, gone to the uh, IT fundamentals, they're taken from IT fundamentals, yeah. all the way through understanding how to do threat hunting. Mm -hmm. And then they come out and they have a broad spectrum of knowledge of basically everything in cybersecurity. And they're, yep. they're kind of more of like, it's almost like a, a generalized specialist, for lack of a better yep. word. Somebody who has a very general understanding of cybersecurity at large, but has a specific skill set within that scope. Yep. So I, and I don't think that exists in private sector at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that has a lot to do with the education system in general because, you know, going going through, uh, you know, my time at, at the University of South Florida, like when first starting in 2010, there, I mean, still to this day, we have offensive security that's extremely taboo, mm -hmm. and no one wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to teach it, and they feel like professors are uh, afraid in a lot of ways of trying to teach offensive security, and a lot of them don't know offensive security. And so you end up having to learn that on yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's if you're lucky enough, like right. I was lucky enough, to have a group of people that were there and that they had alumni members who would mentor us uh, to teach us offensive security techniques. And so that's how we ended up learning things. Like we would always say like, we didn't learn anything in our in our courses, right? I mean, we did, right? We learned the computer science part, but actually doing the offensive security, like binary analysis, yeah, nobody teaches that, yeah. right? And if they do, it's extremely fundamental. And so, like, that's some of the problem. Where, like, if you go into the military, you get that exposure, mm -hmm. and and so you get that on the fly training, right? where the majority of people just going through like education, trying to learn a, a new skill, even just going through like certifications, there may be like one or two that I, that I would put on a different spectrum of, of being able to teach you those, those skills. Uh, but they're, they're so difficult that even the professionals in the field today mm -hmm. have trouble with them and they take a long time, like six months or so to they get. They cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. They cost a lot of money mm -hmm. and, and so there's a, and there's tons of attrition on that. Yeah. Um, and so like nobody ends up with those skills. And so we just have like this skills gap. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and a lot of it's created because we don't learn both sides. We might learn some defensive techniques. Um, even in going through university, like they don't really teach you like defensive, like SOC analyst type stuff. Right. And they don't really teach you anything defensive that you would do in an IT security field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, they just teach you like, oh, this is like, like even like network port ports and natting and stuff like that. You end up having to learn on your own. <laughs> yeah. what, what's interesting to me too, Lewis, like w when we first met and we were talking about cybersecurity in general, mm -hmm. and you you told me about like the systems you would di design for uh, the work you were doing in gaming and yeah. like the the anti hack anti cheat stuff. And that's stuff that would I would consider falling squarely into mm -hmm. cybersecurity, defensive cybersecurity. Yep. We'll yeah. just call it cybersecurity. Yeah. But at the time, you, you were like, oh, no, that's not really cybersecurity. That's just good software engineering <laughs> designs. Yeah. So there's also like this lack of understanding of what like what is just good design practice yeah. and then what is 
actual cyber security yeah. and then yeah. how do you even begin to define that right yeah, yeah it's a it's a very open topic um <laughs> i don't even know where to start so, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean so that, like what was your perspective like coming into from that experience doing anti-hack anti-cheat working yeah. at a gaming company and then coming on board with people like david and i who are coming from like the offensive security mindset yeah i think like the the biggest difference is the stuff i was doing was like it's it's math, right? Like it's crypto and it's like uh, dealing with like memory bolts and stuff like that and things that you could just reason about. Um, making things logically robust is like probably the best way I would describe it, even though it's probably a terrible way of describing it. Uh, <laughs> whereas the stuff like when I look at a lot of the offensive secu security stuff, especially like the, like the network side stuff, uh, it's like, oh, you just have a lot of patience uh, Bribing your head against the wall, dealing with like OS level command, like dealing with like the internals of Windows, and dealing with like Linux random quirks and like hiccups and all that kind of stuff, um, and it, it requires a lot of patience. Whereas like the stuff that I was interested in, the stuff that I did, uh, was like it. It was just like oh, I can see lines and curves in space and like make them intersect in interesting ways. And from that, like I know that like my checksums line up and stuff like that, right? Um, and I'm not sure where I'm going with that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like when to answer your question, like when I looked at the stuff you guys are doing and stuff that I did, like the, the, the thing with cybersecurity is to me at least, it requires a lot more just like knowing all this stuff. It requires right. you knowing like the man pages to all these like random commands and stuff like that. Like I suck. I bash, dude. <laughs> like, I can't do it. Like, whereas it's like, and it's kind of the difference between when I was in university, I studied finance, and so it's neither here nor there. But like, the quantitative courses that I took were a lot easier for me than like all like my booster courses, because the booster courses required you to actually read the textbooks and like know all the random like tidbits mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Whereas like the quantitative courses, I could just reason about from like base principles, right? Yeah. yeah. And like for me that's a lot easier. Uh, and when I look at software and like good engineering, like I I think about it on those terms. Like you're just reasoning from zero. Whereas when I look at like the cybersecurity stuff, it's like you just gotta know the shit. And like it's a very, very different thing. Mm -hmm. Um so maybe I'm not sure if that answers it, but No, that's no it does. It yeah. also helps kind of transition and bring us a little bit back on topic. Um, from your experiences, mm -hmm. what do you think in terms of non-cybersecurity industry practices that could be applied to the cybersecurity industry to help solving some of the problems that we've talked about? I mean, I think the simplest one goes back to the nomenclature thing. I think standardization matters a lot. Yeah. I will say, to not crap on the industry, there is a big difference between security and other industries, which is the complexity curve is not static. I think many other industries for a long time, you would see a lag, which was employers would define a role or a need. It would take five to seven years to trickle through the labor market. Empl you know, educational institutions would adapt because it makes sense for their business model. And you'd see enough people being produced. Now, that accelerates during things like World War II, where you turn production into everybody's making bombs and shells and tanks and planes. So all of a sudden, manufacturing can spin up. That's why a meaningful percentage of people in that time worked in manufacturing. I actually think one of the problems um, today is I actually think things are changing too quickly for that model to work. Hmm. And so not to make security sound like it's this, you know, mythical, spooky thing, 
but stuff changes a lot and the roles that are being defined in some ways are not irrelevant but call it 10 20 percent different year over year and so i actually think it's going to be a struggle for that five to seven year lag to exist where educational institutions are actually producing people in enough i also think this is the stuff that you're not really supposed to talk about there is some limit on how many people are actually able to go into this industry yeah like if I said, you know, what percentage of human beings can go and become professional basketball players? The answer is 0.001%, which makes sense. Like, I can't be in the NBA. Why? I can't, like, jump high enough, and I can't run fast enough in a bunch of other dimensions. I'd like to. That'd be awesome. But, like, I can't do that. That's true of every career. And that's not a good or bad thing. It's just, like, so you have, like, a fundamental limit. We don't know what that limit is right now, depending on the role. We don't standardize these roles well at all. But I think the biggest definite, the biggest kind of learning from other industries is just we have to do a better job of communicating what we need from these roles, how to get into these roles, and the actual steps. I just think if somebody, even if somebody knew they wanted to be a SOC analyst tomorrow, and they were committed not for money reasons, for purpose reasons, they wouldn't know where to start. Where do they start? Like, I just think we've made it so confusing for people to actually enter the industry. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Great. Uh, Luce, anything you want to add on to that? I got nothing, man. You got nothing? Just, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, I think that, I mean, that pretty much sums it up well. Great. I don't think we really we, need to hammer the point home anymore, but. We didn't talk about solutions, which maybe is a different podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we can, we can talk a little bit about solutions. I think it's, as we say, in, internal to the company, we don't want to present problems without solutions. Um, so, what what would in your mind? What are some uh, some of the, like the macro level solutions? Because we could talk, we could talk about you know fixing certifications, but I don't think that gets at the core of the problems that we've been talking about. No, there's probably three different actors that can be uh, that can create solutions. So the first are educational institutions. So if and that can mean by the way nonprofit, for profit, cert vendor, you know us. Like it can be anybody in the space. If some group were known as, hey, we onboard you into this industry consistently, we make it simply take care of the complexity, I think that would start to make it a lot easier to onboard. That may not be one, it might be a consortium of people, but like there's kind of a bottom-up approach here. It tends to be in most industries that bottom-up solutions work the best because you know complex systems are complex for a reason, but let's just park that. So that's like the first is we want to bend the educational curve towards solving this problem. The second are things like Microsoft, large companies that are effectively nation states unto themselves that are saying, we're gonna try and solve the problem in this way. They're making a huge concerted push to do this right now, right? Digital skills, they own LinkedIn. And so they basically say, we're committed. I think they came out with a report two days ago. We're committed to solving the skills gap, here's how. I have problems with some of those things. I think it's very difficult for a lot of people to, to self-teach this um, given the complexity of it, but. Google and Facebook, or Google and Microsoft in particular, are pushing towards. And AWS has an education division that's enormous now. You're seeing like a top-down, almost like an educational thing, but coming from corporates. And they're solving it for two reasons. One is that selfishly they need more workers, but two is it's actually good for society and good because they're going to use their products and everything else. The third, which has not happened for a long time, is actually a government mandate, which is. At some point, it's going to become important enough for the government to solve this problem, like a national security problem, like I was mentioning before, that they're going to have to force it yeah. and say, we are going to put $100 billion to work. 
we're going to design the programs and the specs and we're going to force companies and we're going to force educational institutions to create to have this as the standard like in some ways like a nist or a miter or something could do something like that we just don't see that very often for i think obvious reasons but this be, may become important enough and that gap may be large enough that we may see federal intervention saying enough is enough yeah i i could very well see see that happening just based off of the conversations that we have where like you you think of national defense in the physical in meat space as i call it national defense in meat space we have a very robust airspace cyberspace or airspace sea right we have defense forces and people have that reasonable level of certainty mm -hmm. but when like when you plug your computer into the internet it's basically the wild west totally. and I don't, a lot of people don't realize that yeah. and for the most part your companies are on their own you don't have that base level of security totally. so it really is for lack of a better word open war and when you look at it look at it that way it does kind of make sense to have have the government say like you you shall you shall do these things i think you have probably have to yeah 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 people don't realize they're on the same battlefield as everyone else yep yeah, totally it's part of the thesis of this company and i think it's it's as much an education problem from a top-down perspective as it is a training problem like people don't connect those two things it's one of the unique i think it is the most unique thing about this industry is that a small company in some random office building where they know it or not is connected to a warfare operation and they're part of the national defense infrastructure mm -hmm. when people grok that i think the way that we approach training is not like a nice to have like when you have a shortage of a million workers that are literally inhibiting us from being able to protect our country i say r although i'm canadian um <laughs> he's canadian but I think people are going to have to wake up and say enough with the report saying it'd be great to close this gap and enough and we're going to have to say no 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 we need these workers at these standards and we're going to basically get the machinery working towards this. I don't think we're there yet but I would say we're probably we're probably a couple more pipeline attacks away from that happening. Yeah. yeah I was just thinking of the pipeline attack as you were describing this cuz that really was in my mind the type of situation that could could have created this this mandate and and I, I feel like we're gonna see more of those attacks of course just based off based off our understanding and it goes back to like something we had we had somebody say to us where some of the things that we design are too complicated yeah and we need to be simplifying because it's not at the point where these like larger organizations can even do these detections and, right. and handle this type of threat so if you look at that as like your Fortune 2000 level companies are having that issue, and yeah. then and then our like our, our business thesis is we're trying to service the other 80% of the industry. Like we're kind of we're kind of in a world of hurt here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. I'd also add it's not just like the million, million worker shortage of like the cybersecurity professionals that need to be trained. It's like. Everyone needs Everyone. to be trained. Yeah. Because, gonna, like, yes, it's a security very... is a people problem. The only reason security holes exist is because like people need to be able to use software. Um, otherwise, you could just lock up everything. That's totally. not a big deal. Totally. Uh, yeah. And until uh, that surface area is solved, which you only solve by making sure people know how to deal with like their own hygiene, uh, it's, it's going to be forever it, it, it needs to yeah. become a social norm. Exactly. You walk out of your house, you lock your door. Yeah. How do you create that mentality for people in cybersecurity? Yeah. Like, you, you log onto your computer and you don't click the ad that says click here for yeah. hot singles in your area, right? <laughs> like, 
In all seriousness, people click those. People click that <laughs> stuff. Of course, so they wouldn't put them up there. Yeah. They? No. I always, yeah. Absolutely. And to Lewis's point, I think it's a pretty important distinction that the TAM, to use a business term, is not the million shorted. It's everybody in yeah. the space, mm -hmm. and I think that framing it becomes a national problem pretty quickly. Yeah. And so, like, I have actually, I have very little faith mm -hmm. that we have enough time to solve it through kind of organic <laughs> training methods. I yeah. think. CISA is only going to have so many reports that they put on the president's desk, irrespective of who the president is, saying, yeah. we have an infrastructure problem. You created this stupid agency to solve the infrastructure problem. We keep telling you, we are going to have to basically mandate this stuff and use, it's a public service problem. It's a national security problem. Like there's a reason why we have an apparatus that serves the public and not just privates. The private market can't actually solve. I think people are like really obsessed with like efficient market hypothesis, and they're just like, oh, the private market will figure stuff out. In some cases, they either can't or shouldn't. Yeah. And when you're blending public and private together, in some cases, they shouldn't solve that problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, put put simply, this is a national security problem, it as, is. as you had said. Yeah. And national security is government space. Of course. Yeah. So so it is. It needs. It probably needs to be a public-private partnership to a certain extent. But I think I think we are starting to see stuff with like the trillion-dollar bill to rebuild infrastructure in the country. And CISA just recently uh, enabled enabled salary bans up to like two hundred exactly trying to compete dollars. more with. So now now trying to uh, attract the talent that typically would go to exactly. the the fangs the fangs or, the fangs or, or whatever they're called or now, federal the, contractors well the the mangs now the mangs <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you can't use fang anymore oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the mangs it's mang mang or the oh, hell geez. it's called yeah well, well it's not it's not google anymore it's alphabet so it's, it's mana mana mana, <laughs> mana. oh geez uh, I think Microsoft always gets cut out of that don't they yeah which is ridiculous so it's not yeah, it's, so they're it's not true. in the valley they're, they're not in the valley now there's Amazon yeah yeah, <laughs> manum. And that's manum. <laughs> yeah, okay, we're probably boring. Oh, yeah. Boring the audience. Okay. All right. Well, I, I think that we're already pushing for time. We wanted this to be a uh, a quicker one, but I okay. think we we covered a lot of stuff and yeah. we covered a lot of important stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I want to thank both of you for coming thank on the guys. podcast, uh, yeah. giving us some of your time, and getting to introduce you to the listeners is also a very good thing. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Nice yep. to meet you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lewis. So if you haven't already, uh, we have a, uh, a we have a Discord. Um, so uh, definitely be a part of our Discord. Uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, so the video podcast will be on YouTube. Um, audio podcast will be on most major podcasting from uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts. Um, and uh, if you haven't downloaded Operator yet, you can go to prelude.org, download Operator. And with that, Prelude signing out. <laughs>